Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And he's back. I know you missed him the last time. Sam was on sabbatical. He thought he was retired. Uh, but just like uh, in The Godfather, we just we we brought him back in. He thought just he was when I thought I was out, they bring him back in. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, welcome back, Sam. And uh, the reason we got Sam back today is we have a very special guest here on Monday, November 20th, 2023. We have the CEO and CIO from Damp Spring, or Damp Spring, a full-service macroeconomic research firm headed by Andy Constant. And we have none other than with us today, Andy Constant. So Andy, welcome to The Sherman Show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so it must be a slow week uh, over at Damp Spring if you're joining us on the webcast today. But, you know, I, I, I'd like to, to really start off by introducing people a bit to your background. Uh, you've had a lot of roles as an idea generator. You know, you were a chief strategist at, at some prominent names too. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit about your career and what got you to ultimately uh, launch Damp Spring. Sure. Uh, so I started my career in 1986 at Solomon Brothers, which was a large investment bank at the time, well, famous for its um, prowess in trading bonds, but we were full service. And I became a trader after the Brady Commission uh, that examined the stock market crash, where I got to serve as Solomon's representative and fell in love with markets and moved down to the trading floor uh, in uh, 1988 and traded equity derivatives, convertible bonds, uh, pretty much every product except mortgages throughout my uh, trading career. Uh, when I left, I was the global head of equity derivatives, um, sales trading, research, everything. Um, and uh, I started my own hedge fund that was okay for a few years. And then partners sort of clashed and we closed it all down. And I was on the sidelines during the financial crisis and uh, thought had retired, but they pulled me back in. And uh, I decided that what I really needed to understand is macro investing. And so I joined Bridgewater Associates, which I think is the premier um, thinker in macro, uh, systematic macro in particular, but also just brilliant minds in thinking about macro, and worked for them for three, a little over three years. Um, the culture was a challenge, and uh, I decided finally to uh, move on moved on to uh, work at a discretionary macro hedge fund of, of uh, long-term standing and great reputation called Brevin Howard. There I worked with Alan Howard uh, to build some systematic macro that they were trying to put in, into their discretionary firm, and then uh, also became chief, chief strategist and provided uh, all of the traders at Brevin uh, my, my framework for understanding the economy and linking that to what's priced in and then what to do about it in markets. And um, after 20, by 2019, Brevin had unfortunately lost a lot of assets under management and they decided to spin me off into a, uh, a research firm. And that's what launched Damp Spring. And my initial client was Brevin Howard. And then I picked up a number of institutional clients, hedge funds that I consult on that framework and that strategy. And uh, then I became, started writing on Twitter and, you know, started with 100 followers, friends and family, but started interacting with a bunch of the FinTwit people out there and got a following. And now I'm got about 120,000 followers and, 
you know, I'm read by, I guess, a lot of people. And that's really both expanded my hedge fund business and allowed me to um, help individuals as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you to introduce our audience to your macroeconomic framework, but it sounds like that may be a little bit of a conflict here, given uh, that you charge a lot of folks for that insight. So um, maybe we could just back up a little bit and, you know, talk about some of this, too, as you think about the world. What do you think kind of key variables are to focus on when creating one's macroeconomic framework? Yeah, so I'll be happy to share my macroeconomic framework. I think it's um, general enough that, you know, everyone should be able to understand it, but also not going to, you know, cost me business, I don't think. Um, you know, when I think about macro, there are some two things that I think are pretty much table stakes nowadays. And that is you have to really have an outlook and understanding of how growth occurs in an economy and how infl and that lately, in particular lately, how inflation works in an economy. Um, many people in macro in, in in markets have forgotten what inflation has been like. And so, you know, that's coming, you know, having that understanding is critical in the last three to four years. Um, and that's table stakes. I think everyone has to have a you know a good understanding of how those two things work and what they do to asset prices. The things that I've added are um really understanding the uh, risk premium that assets contain and how that how policymakers and how market participants can um, influence the risk premium, which is the return you get on assets. So that has been uh, you know where I think I think I've made my mark with clients and on the web and through my research. And then lastly, I think um, understanding positioning in a deep way um, to understand that, you know, when those three other things are moving, it still matters how people are positioned, what's priced into markets, and what's going to cause uh, investors to change their positioning. And so that's the four pillar framework I operate with. So without, again, giving away the keys to the kingdom here, as, as I think about risk premia, how do you how do you create a framework around that? Again, being somewhat obtuse here, not, not getting into all the weeds, but, um, you know, we always hear about there's an equity risk premium or there's a credit risk premium. Um, and a lot of it points to historical data. But I think sometimes what's missed in that, and again, correct me if, if I'm thinking about it incorrectly, but you know, there is a point where valuation impacts that, right? And so uh, a lot of people use history as a guide, but you have to think about it on a forward-looking basis too. And so uh, how do you how do you kind of think about those things together um, when creating a framework for thinking about risk premia? Right. So, you know, a lot of people want to pin down risk premium, equity risk premium, bond term premium, any um, premium that uh, an asset contains into a specific thing that should be correct. And that's like saying that a PE should be correct. Um, no, it shouldn't. There's no level that is the correct level. And you should, you know, if term premium is too high, you should buy assets. And if it's too low, you should sell assets. Um, I think you'll get yourself in a lot of trouble, just as most investors get themselves in a lot of trouble when they think about, you know, what the fair value of an investment is. And if it's less than fair value, they buy it. And if it's greater than fair value, they sell it. Um, 
markets overshoot all the time to those levels. And it's very difficult to be an investor to just base your uh, investment thesis on the level of valuation. And so the level of risk premium is not that important to me because you, for one, nobody knows what it is. So the only way you can interpret risk premium is through a model. All models have assumptions. All models require assumptions of forward-looking information, which is unavailable. And so it doesn't exist. Term premium is just a concept, not a thing you can point to um, and say, yes, the term premium is this. Um, and so my framework just focuses on what could change term premiums, because that's what you need to know to be an investor. If you think term premiums are going to fall, you want to own assets. If you think term premiums are going to expand, you want to sell assets. And so my framework just focuses on the factors that would cause term premium to change. So do you think about that from a, you know, you're using the cross section of these variables to, to think about those dynamics? Um, is it using some form of momentum and thinking about monetary flows? We all know that flows drive asset prices both directions, right? Um, is it trying to capture some of that? Or is it really comparing things somewhat cross-sectionally and thinking about how those macroeconomic drivers influence those things? Right. So there's a couple of things you're saying there. The cross-section issue potentially has to do with the way various assets are priced and what their term premium might be. And then there's the aggregate class of assets and how those term premiums evolve. Let me step back and describe what I mean. Um, when I talk about a factor that is going to influence term premium, I've really broken it into two things. Um, one is if an if the investment world, the all assets that are available for investors to buy and sell, becomes riskier for whatever reason. Just if you hold assets, you're going to experience more PL risk every day. You'd prefer cash versus, and so your natural view is, hey, I was, I thought um, assets had a certain expected return and uh, a certain risk, and the expected return hasn't changed, but the risk has gone up. I want less assets. And so that's a sort of factor that should could should cause risk premiums to expand as people who accept the assets you sell are also looking at those factors and they're going to charge you additional risk premium in order to take assets off your hands. And so Portfolio volatility is a very co important concept in terms of term premium drivers, and portfolio volatility has to do with individual asset volatility, has to do with correlations between assets. And so having an understanding of what drives volatility and what drives correlation is an important aspect of portfolio volatility targeting or expectations. The other factor for term premium is if you think about all assets that could exist 
and you think about all the money and credit that is around and available to buy those assets, you can think of those as a supply and demand. And when assets, more assets are, um, are created, creating supply of assets for the same fixed amount of money and credit that's available to buy them, meaning money is getting tighter, you would expect term premiums to expand. On the other hand, if the Fed is buying, um, buying assets through quantitative easing, for instance, or lowering the price of money and credit so people are more willing to borrow to buy assets, um, those factors can cause term premiums to collapse or, or, or contract. And so those that, that, that's the framework, the supply and demand of money and credit versus assets, and the volatility of a portfolio of assets. And so my work just says, how are those things changing? Yeah, no, I mean it's great. Um, and again, um, you know, uh, I think I think it's uh, important as you think about this uh, to step back and, like you just said, it's still a model, right? We all know that it's just a model. It's inputs. There's there's estimation error, and, and, and you know, it's whether or not it gets amplified through one's model. But you know, you mentioned at the onset that um, perhaps people have um, not not been thinking about the inflation component for uh, let's call it over a decade, right? Where we had this compressed inflationary regime. Uh, well, what is your thought? What, what are your thoughts about inflation today? What are your thoughts about how investors should incorporate some of this into estimating some of these premiums and hence thinking through the allocation process? So well, what's important about inflation today? Well, I think the first thing is obviously it, has, it, is, it is coming down and has been coming down for a long time. Um, after a supply spike and then a monetary and fiscal stimulus creating, um, allowing people without the ability to work to still consume, um, and then a reopening, which allowed people to, which caused a big, in, with the in sizable demand, um, required a lot of people to um, uh, a lot of people to be hired, and there were a limited number, and so prices rose. Supply chains corrected, inflation came down. Monetary policy was uh, began to become um, less easy, um, and inflation began to fall. Um, and that's where we are. And it looks like, you know, if you extrapolate the data, it looks like not only are we going to reach target relatively soon, but we may undershoot. And so inflation may be dead. Um, now, that's not my view. My view is the problem is much bigger. And the factors that drive that, the potential for increased growth and increased inflation were at least a plateauing of both of those things at a level that is well higher than the Fed's desired targets are in are those a number of factors are in place. Um, and so those factors are a still very strong job market, um, which has not, which has weakened a little bit, but shows very little sign of weakening to target that would be uh, sufficient to kill inflation. Um, the residual 
uh, ample reserves of that have uh, that still are coursing through the system um, that can um, that will keep uh, liquidity still high and um, support demand, which needs to be withdrawn through quantitative tightening, which is taking time. Um, and then there's a secular, well, it's a cyclical change from deglobalization, from globalization to deglobalization. And globalization was a, you know, a decades-long secular trend uh, resulting in lower prices for the world, as people with low productivity were moved from the farms, you know, the dirt farms, subsistence farms in um, central China to the cities and became significantly more productive um, at a much cheaper price. And that happened in many regions of the of the world. Um, and so COVID has changed that secular trend. And I'm not sure it's cyclical yet, but it is secular yet, but it's certainly cyclical, which is this nationalistic deglobalization in which, and I describe it as three Ds. Um, one, we create um, duplicate supply chains um, using our, our own neighbors who are allies and closer. Um, and two is uh, creating um, domestic energy infrastructure, which all of the various nations are attempting to do uh, with whatever particular form of, of energy generation they have, but the investments are sizable. And then there's true deglobalization, which you know is called onshoring, in which we decide that it's an, a, a, a national priority to have chips manufactured on our shores. Um, and those three things are, um, they, they're, they're, pitched to us as not inflationary, even though they require significant upfront spending. But that's because they are pitched to us as replacing other providers. And so we're going to make our stuff and it's going to be cheaper. But the fact is, we'll have a significant amount of capacity and waste that is created when you have duplicate supply chains. There's no efficiencies that are created from that. And so the inflationary um, the deflationary payoff is not clear to me that it'll come down the pike in a number of years, but the moment at the moment, it's very inflationary. And so those three factors of 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 of, of money in the system, um, jobs, and the three Ds of deglobalization are likely to keep inflation higher for longer. So, so you point out that this could be something secular. Um, in in speaking with some folks, what I, I've heard as of late is it's nice with this disinflationary environment. Words we talk about like when we speak macroeconomics, but it just means a decelerating rate of inflation from from previous levels we had. But what do you think about the impacts, like on a cyclical basis, from the cumulative inflation that we've experienced, right? And so you, you hear this from, you know, kind of lower income cohorts, uh, folks that, you know, don't have the savings, don't have assets out there, that how much more expensive things are and potentially things haven't kept up. So 
Do you think that that has an impact on the, the kind of, let's call it the short to medium term cyclical component that this cumulative effects of inflation, we haven't really seen all of those effects yet, which may scare people into thinking it's deflationary or back to this other environment, but still the underlying forces you just described are still at play. So how do you think about the interplay there? Or do you think that that's that kind of cyclical uh, thing that I'm talking about, cumulative inflation, won't necessarily play out? Yeah. So, you know, what I think markets care about and policymakers care about is uh, the forward-looking inflation. Um, I think sociologists and politicians uh, should care about the impact on the various cohorts that are experiencing inflation and how they may uh, behave both politically and socially. Um, you know, it's a, it's not a great thing, that not a great thing at all, that we're finding that there are winners and losers in this game. And the losers are losing pretty heavily. And to kill inflation, it's most likely that they're going to lose, some of them are going to also lose their jobs. And so it's a pretty ugly circumstance politically and socially uh, to have that cumulative inflation. But I think policymakers have to think about forward-looking inflation and whether they can control it or not. And, you know, I think the markets uh, are pricing the Fed beginning to cut rates. Um, we're going to land softly and inflation is going to, despite all these upward pressures on inflation that I've described, um, we're going to experience um, inflation back to target without anybody really losing their job. And I think that's an that and that's where markets feel seem to be priced. And I think that's a possibility. It just seems extremely low odds. I mean, it almost feels like a little bit of complacency from uh, the market, you know, participants at this level. But you know, given some of your thoughts around this about inflation and perhaps you know how it might translate into the real economy, what are your thoughts here in terms of uh, Fed monetary policy response moving forward? Because it just seems like really since the November meeting and really what preceded that was, I guess, the quarterly refunding announcements leading into Jerome Powell's presser. And then from there, it just seems like markets have just started to rally you know, on this idea of perhaps a dovish pivot. Um, but it, to me, it seems like a little bit early. <laughs> for, for that and, that come, and that comes back to my principal framework that has been the dominant impact on my uh, research for a while now, which is uh, the impact of issuance and quantitative tightening on financial conditions. And, you know, when we saw quantitative tightening announced well before it, um, which was in, in December of 2021, I called it uh, kryptonite for assets and a game changer and said the market was going to, yields were going to rise significantly and equity prices were going to fall. I think I said 4,400 at the time, which turned out to be very optimistic. Um, and the reason is that is a tightening of financial conditions. And so the tightening of financial conditions causes risk premiums to expand, which causes assets to become correlate, correlated, which causes risks to be higher because there's no diversification benefit, and you get what happened in 2022. Um, and so I think that really was the major thing. And then 
Jen, you know, come the end of 2022, um, Markets closed weak for the year, but then started to take off um, sub sub substantially. Now, some of that was AI hype, um, which has turned out to be AI reality in many ways. Um, but the rest of it was a broad tightening of, sorry, con uh, contraction in term premium. And I believe the reason is you have to understand the mechanism of quantitative tightening. Quantitative easing was simple. The Fed bought bonds. Quantitative tightening is different because the Fed is just letting their bonds mature. And Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, decides how to pay the Fed back with what she chooses to issue. And in the first half of this year, uh, she had very significant limitations on the national debt because of the debt ceiling. And so for six months, she was essentially limited in what she could issue. And so because there was lack of supply, QT essentially got muted during that period of time, and assets were able to do well. Well enough, in fact, so that you know what appeared to be a pretty big disaster in the uh, regional banks turned out to be a non-event. Now, there was some policymaker response that also eased things, but by and large, we got through a pretty difficult event with no big deal. Um, now, in July or June, the debt ceiling came off and Janet decided to transmit, to raise money to get the deficit funded and to rebuild her bank account and to pay off the Fed by using treasury bills. Um, she used uh, over, uh, close to a trillion dollars in treasury bills in the, in the third quarter um, and very little coupon bonds, which meant that there was a huge demand for treasury bills and assets just could see no headwinds of large supply. And that all changed at the peak of the market on July 31st, when Janet Yellen said, you know, we're going to increase the amount of bonds from 178 billion to 338 billion in Q4. And front running of that supply happened in earnest. Uh, 30-year bonds, 10-year bonds rallied, uh, sorry, sold off by 100 basis points from 4 to 5% in just three months. The equity market fell 10% fell in just three months. Now, both markets went down. So this was not growth. Inflation was, you know, trending down like it has. This wasn't growth. This wasn't earnings. This was just term premium expansion ahead of a large supply. Essentially, QT became unmuted. And then on 1031, Janet decided to mute it again and not increase the bond supply anywhere near what was expected by market participants. And what you've had is what you should expect when, as I said, the big thing is there's this money and credit that's available to buy assets, and then there are these assets which if their T-bills are not very risky, but if their coupon bonds are quite risky and there's limited capacity to own those things, so people need incentive to buy them. And so what's happened now that that supply didn't come to market? Assets have rallied massively. The NASDAQ is higher than it was on July 31st. The S&P is within whiskers of where it was on July 31st. Uh, T-bond 10-year uh, note yields have uh, rallied 
uh, 50 basis points, almost 60 now. Um, and that is in 18 days. And it only, <laughs> you know, it's pretty straightforward what happened. You know, Powell didn't say that much in the presser that was that would cause, you know, every asset on the planet to moon, the dollar to sell off. We just had a massive um, financial conditions easing that was created by the Treasury's decision to not sell as many bonds as markets expected, knowing full well that what they were doing was not selling as many bonds as market expected. And so um, in my my view, that's been the cause of this very significant rally in, in all assets. Um, and but Andy, Andy, isn't that antithetical to what the Fed is saying to us at the pressers, right? So you said Jay did nothing, or Mr. Powell did nothing to, to do this, but isn't it antithetical to what they're talking about and being inflation fighters and watch this? And there was a direct question at the press conference, right, about, you know, monitoring financial conditions and the bond markets doing your job for you by tightening. Um, and so aren't these things kind of at odds with one another? Yeah. All October, every Fed official, Waller, Logan, Williams, uh, um, Kashkari, uh, even some of the doves said higher yields, higher long-term bond yields are doing some of the Fed's job for them. And thus, and thus, this is the important part, and thus, we may not have to raise rates as much. Well, that's all out the window. That is right. And so, and so how does that square with the higher for longer rhetoric? See, that's the whole thing. I, I agree with you. And it felt like that getting near the 5%, you know, increase in the term premium is, as, as we wonky folks call that, right, uh, across the market, it seemed like it was trying to do its job. And I thought at that point, it would lead the Fed to just stay higher for longer with no need to do anything. Do you think that dynamic changes here and we get more volatility in the term premium because of this? Well, here's what I think. I think we had a between a 25 and 50 base on the QRA day, Janet cut interest rates 25 to 50 basis points. That's what she did. Now, she doesn't run monetary policy, but she cut interest rates and cutting interest rates will have the effect it has, which will stimulate demand. At the same time, the Fed is doing everything it can to keep demand under control. Now, the thing is that the data that we've seen since the QRA has been cold. And that's because it came from a period of time when 30-year bond yields were 5%. So there's going to be a lag in which it appears that this easing of financial conditions is um, not happening and not causing inflation and growth to be stimulated. And so there might be a period of time in which the Fed does nothing and just sort of lets out the lets the pl data play. Um, I think what will happen is assets will continue to assume that we're heading toward a soft landing and rally both bonds and stocks um, until either. So on January 31st, Janet's coming again and she's coming with a ton more bonds because she has a ton more bonds to sell. And so I don't know between now and January 31st what happens, but on January 31st, assets are dead. 
because unless she decides again not to come with more bonds and just ramps the bills even higher and does again takes the monetary policy lever away from the fed and the fed just sits by and lets it happen but they are at odds well Can today we had the best 20 year auction we had the best 20 year auction we've had really since the creation of the 20 year the re reintroduction the, of it too the 20 i watched all the auctions the 20 is just a you know they call it a redheaded stepchild that doesn't that doesn't get any love but this time it did you know we had a 30 year auction that was awful yeah, at a certain yield, I guess uh, above, you know, it's 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 neighbors at the ten and the thirty year mark. I guess it does uh, draw a crowd there. But uh, can you draw the distinction with regards to to treasury refunding or quarterly refunding and this idea of Janet selling less than expected? Um, that's one component. But then also you started to to. You mentioned it, you know, the difference in selling between the, the coupons and the um, and bills. bills and how that plays out in terms of of mon uh, fiscal slash monetary policy. I guess they're all uh, one and the same pretty much in this in this conversation. Yeah. So I, I just like to think of it this way. Um, the government needs a dollar of financing and it can finance it in many different ways. And um, if it were to finance it entirely with bills. Those are very low risk. And so market participants can, with a very small incentive, uh, find a way to lever up and buy bills. Just extremely high because there's very little risk. They get their money back in a week, a month, four, eight weeks, 12 weeks, et cetera. Um, if the government decides to finance that dollar with a 30-year bond, well, that has quite a bit of price risk, and you know people would want a high return term premium to assume that risk. And there's a limited set of investors who would even consider it. And so the choice on that spe spectrum, and it is a spectrum. You know, they use bills, two years, three years, five years, seven years, et cetera, tips, floating rate notes, all the various securities they offer. Um, each has a certain risk, and if you use if you demand less risk from the market, the market finds ways to take risk that it wasn't able to get from the treasury, and that's what we're seeing right now is the market scrambling to own risk because they expected to be able to buy some of their risk from the treasury. So, so as you think about this too, I, I mean, it, it's completely logical how how you've laid all this out. But the market narrative was that it's not some term premium coming back in or it's this habit. It's that there's this long-term structural deficit and ultimate, the, ultimately the deficit will matter. And ultimately the deficit does matter at some point in time. It matters when it matters, of course, right? When the market wakes up to it. But how are you thinking about this as you talk about Janet's need to finance things and uh, she'll, she'll pass it on to the next treasury secretary as well. But does it matter uh, in your framework? Is it a relative kind of game? I mean, we've seen Japan do it for, for many decades. And yeah. so the question is, is when does it matter? Uh, obviously, it becomes untenable when, when debt service consumes so much of the deficit. But is, is that really a problem that investors should be thinking about today? Or is it something that we need to have in a longer term framework? Yeah, so I, I think the important 
element. So that's an interesting discussion. Topics like MMT come up in that discussion, and let's head on to that in a moment. But I think the important distinction I want to make for this particular environment is that it's not the deficit that matters. It's quantitative tightening and paying back the Fed who withdraws liquidity through uh, the reserve balances of company of uh, banks and the money market fund RRP. Um, mm -hmm. That withdrawal of 720 billion a year needs to be financed. And so that's really my focus because it's quantitative tightening and the goal of it is to widen risk premiums to slow to hit the wealth effect to slow the economy. The, the bigger topic the, of we, we run a deficit, you know, we are going to have a one point, uh, forget paying back the Fed there, 720 billion. We're still going to need 160, 1.6 trillion from the market just to finance our spending in excess of our tax receipts, which is our deficit. Now, that's a super complicated issue because when we spend, when the government spends, it hands money to the private sector. It literally deposits money into the private sector's bank accounts, whether it's a defense contractor or a social security re recipient or a doctor receiving healthcare uh, from, a, from someone's um, healthcare benefits, uh, Medicare, all, whether it's interest, which flows into savings accounts, all of that spending is deposits in, um, people's bank accounts. But the great thing about it is it turns ultimately, as it flows through the economy, through consumption, income, savings, it becomes savings. And the only thing available to save are the government bonds. And so our spending is handed to the economy sorry, the private sector, and the private sector uses that money over time to buy the same bonds that we use to issue that deficit. And so there's a period of time in which, you know, those flows, it matters, you know, are we issuing a lot of bonds today and not spending until six months from now? Well, you know, that that that's a timing issue. But in aggregate, every single day, some of our spending is converted into savings to buy the bonds that we're issuing on that day. And so MMT people would say you can increase your debt without limit. Um, and most people, uh, for whether it's a psychological problem that we all think of our debt, personal debt, our private sector debt, our corporate debt as something that is uh, has a limit to how much debt we can go into, but we don't own a printing press. And so it really depends on what, and Japan is a good example. Um, they rose, their debt to GDP was is over 200%, might be over 300%. It's high. Um, ours is not that high. Um, and so, and even if the interest rate is high, we still get to print it. So, you know, I'm fairly agnostic on whether um, it, uh, whether there is a limit, but I'm fairly meaning I don't I don't want to take sides on the MMT versus traditional understanding of, of the way the world works. But I would say that 
we are doing MMT. We are creating a deficit in a period of time of uh, strong growth, which is very unusual. Um, so we are doing that spending, which is very stimulative to the economy. And we're way away from a point where it's going to reach any, if there is a capacity, we're nowhere near it. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of drawing on everything we've been talking about for the last, I guess, almost 45 minutes here, just putting it all together. Um, not necessarily just from a portfolio construction point of view, but in terms of, you know, the way that you know, market participants are thinking about the next, I'll call it six, 12 months, maybe even longer, but what are some of the underappreciated risks, I guess, out there that people might be missing or just being a little bit too complacent about? And then, you know, if you're more optimistic, what are some of the under, you know, appreciated opportunities that people might be missing as well? I think the most, so I'm at the moment, you know, I, if you talk to me on the 31st, when I saw that Janet wasn't uh, going to issue bonds, I said um, on television, actually on CNBC, buy all assets because term premiums were going to collapse. And that's exactly what's happened. Now, it's it's only been 18 days and, you know, stocks are up 11, 12 percent. And that's more than I expected. And so I'm actually now in the position of saying, you know, as a as a raise some cash, it, it, you know, if you were if you're all fully invested on 31st on my words, you know, raise some cash. It's probably a good idea. Um, and I would think that, you know, this um, term premium expansion is going to run into either the Fed pushing back by tightening monetary policy. They could even change quantitative tightening, though I think that would be very unlikely in terms of the, how much they do, do more. Um, but they could hike interest rates. Um, they could jawbone the fact that they no longer have these lower, um, these higher yields. That may not have much of an effect. But on January 31st, we get to see another piece of data. And so my basic view is we're in a point where assets are, have significantly richened and are probably not going to perform as well as cash as a group. You know, stocks could go up, bonds could go up, but both of them aren't going to go up. Um, in excess of cash. And so I'm raising cash or getting short in my alpha account. Um, and on January 31st, I'll know which way I want to go. Yeah, I mean, I think as I think through it too, it is pretty amazing when you look at just the last few weeks, your 18 days, as you say, um, it has been lower quality, right? Uh, I hear it from our credit folks too. It's the triple C's, it's the lower courts that were struggling with higher yields and tighter financial conditions. And so um, it's almost like a, a prescriptive playbook there um, where, you know, you see it, whether it's small caps, you see, you know, again, lower quality names, it's been doing that. So um, Andy, it's been a pleasure to have you on here. We're going to have to bring you back because we didn't even touch the surface here. Uh, maybe it's post a uh, new QRA. We, we bring you back again, you know, and, and see what, what the inside is there. But for our listeners out there, perhaps, before we let you go, you can tell them how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow you, how they can find more about your work, and um, and, and again, just uh, be able to uh, grant some of your wisdom to them. Thanks. So uh, the best way to follow me is at Damp Spring on Twitter or at DampedSpring.com. Yeah. Okay. 
I've always learned about the oscillating spring. So it's great to see the damp spring, you know, too. I mean, it's, yes, the damp spring is in the oscillation, you know, but, uh, you know, that, that's always one of those examples in, uh, in differential equations that you get. So absolutely. So, so I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the witty uh, Twitter handle, unlike us who have Sherman Show Pod. Uh, not very creative out there, but, um, you know, it gets the point across. So, uh, Andy, it was a pleasure having you today. But before we let you go, we have to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam? All right, Andy, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts be between you and Sherman to get a top of my response. To pave the way here, I'm going to give the first prompt to Sherman, and that prompt is market overshoot. Like clockwork, right? It goes both directions. Uh, it's a symmetric thing at times, but um, like um, I, I think some of it is, um, you know, uh, that I think there's still a cross-sectional economic volatility. Like it's not any one data set or any data point through the time series is being volatile. I think there's something for everyone in this market right now, and I think that's leading to some of these behaviors. But never forget the money. The money flow drives everything. And I think Andy's spot on with a lot of this uh, perception of, of financial conditions as well. All right, over to you, Andy, with uh, Treasury refunding announcement. It's important. My uh, old boss at um, Bridgewater uh, called it um, right after the 731 uh, QRA, the most important piece of data of the year nowadays. Indeed, it's 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 interesting. I mean, we've always you know followed it, but just in terms of how much media attention has been picking up around the, the QRA has just been uh, it's been pretty interesting to see that people are gathering on the same uh, concept here. Yeah, I think uh, it's sure. the same thing that people used to think about about the credit impulses, right? Like how credit expands, how credit changes, and again, it's still implied from financial conditions, but I think they're 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 very much linked. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Sherman, back to you with, uh, let's see here, Fed pivot. Good luck. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> hold my breath waiting for it. As Andy laid out the case, why, why they really shouldn't pivot at this point. And so uh, I don't see it. I, uh, I think it's interesting that the market's pulled forward the expectations. But I said, it, I've always said it's a probability waiting machine just because you see this nice smooth gl glide point, which is people making bets on things. And so... Um, I wouldn't expect uh, the Fed to pivot anytime soon. All right, back to you, Andy, with earnings growth. Earnings growth is extremely uh, large in both um, in terms of expectations, 12% annualized growth for this year, for 2024 and 2025. Um, and if you break that down a little bit, it's still 8 to 10% growth for the um mag the s p 493 um which is still a very big number um and very possible very possible if and only if nominal gdp is very high which means inflation is very high so if we get the growth that's analysts predict that by the way they're told to predict by their companies if we get that growth Inflation is going to be high, and bonds are going to be much, much higher in yield. Which tightens right. conditions, which has a feedback mechanism, right? And that's why I was, I was talking to some uh, clients the other day, and it was like, 
Okay, so paint the picture. Let's just say you're a company. How do you get to 10% growth? Well, you raise prices 10%, you increase your top line 10%. That can't be great for the consumer. Or you do the other side and you increase, increase efficiencies, cut costs. I think that has to reek of labor reduction too, which isn't great either. So it's tough for me at this point in the cycle to see how we get there, but it's completely plausible, as you said, and uh, nev never uh, discount plausible versus pl uh, versus the probability, right? Yep. And times like these don't necessarily stick your neck out against a company line, right? <laughs> when you're being told. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's yeah. go. Uh, I forgot whose turn. Hey, Sherman, it's your turn. Uh, bank deposit rates. Uh, complete ripoff. Yeah, become <laughs> financially literate. Um, I was scouring this the other day because someone told me my data was bad. Look at the large banks. They literally offer you one basis point on their websites. And so, I mean, the average rate is like 60 or 70, which is probably skewed. Um, there are places that pay you at least T-bill minus fees. And so look for those. Uh, you know, again, uh, they're just a, a complete ripoff. And so, unfortunately, it's not the U.S. that's just financial, that has financial literacy issues, it's globally, right? We don't teach it, people aren't aware of it. We sit around and debate interest rates and all this all day long. And uh, unfortunately, uh, our, our uh, fellow citizens uh, just don't have that luxury. So it's your job, Andy, to get out there and tell people that you know we, we can go there. Janet will sell you bills all day long on treasurydirect.gov. Not great for our business, but you know what? At the end of the day, uh, it's the right thing to do. All right, back to you, Andy, with deglobalization. Yeah, it's a trend. Um, I don't see it turning. I think it is becoming secular, and it's you know the outcome of populist policy and populist rhetoric from both sides of the aisle in the U.S. and Argentina, that you know today, and uh, you know it's gonna it's gonna put up walls and create inefficiencies and make inflation stickier. All right. Uh, Sherman, health of the consumer. I think it's very bifurcated. Uh, we talked about it earlier, right? Just I, I alluded to it, right? You have the asset owners that, that have the wealth effects, the people that have higher incomes and, and higher uh, asset bases that have done quite well. Um, and you're starting to see some of the challenges in that lower income strata, right? Which you, you typically see, right? Um, that's part of usually a slowing part of the cycle. But does it spill over? It doesn't spill over unless uh, we have a we have a problem with the labor market. And so, um, as always, as labor goes, the economy goes. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's a very I call it bifurcated. But you know, when you look at it, it's probably the the lower fifteen to twenty percent that are struggling the most. Um, that's why I was asking Andy the question about cumulative effects of inflation because obviously it impacts that that cohort the most. All right. Um, let's see here, Andy, for you, U.S. recession. U.S. recession? Yes, uh, I am, uh, with these sort of financial conditions, it's not going to happen. All right. Sherman, let's uh, wind it down here with uh, the final one for each of you. Different ones, but uh, Sherman, yours is going to be turkey substitutes. Anything but. I mean, you, you know my feelings about turkey uh sam it's uh i feel like it's one of the worst uh worst meat dishes out there i think it's notoriously dry uh, send all the hate mail all you turkey lovers send it to me um you yeah you got a spice oh you don't cook it right 
it, it's just a bland. It's the worst poultry there is. I mean, even even a piece of rubbery chicken that we get at conferences is better than turkey. Um, in all scenarios, that's why they created gravy to put on top of it <laughs> because it's that bad. So you know, this is my least favorite uh, consumption. I don't like the cranberries. I, I just don't like the the meal at Thanksgiving. So um, you know, again, it's not it's not my uh, favorite uh, feasting day of the year. So I'm happy to uh, let everyone else eat it and uh, and overeat that day. So yeah. So what what's the substitute? Anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, bringing up turkey around Thanksgiving almost is the same level of vitriol from you as uh, bringing up uh, vests. I guess uh, you know out there as yeah. well. So. It's a, it's a, it's a year round hate. Um, it's like you playing you know, Christmas music on the trading desk in like September. So while we have to establish rules, you can haze me around. You know, turk my 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 feelings on turkey. As I said, always that Friday after you can crank holiday music until the end of Christmas or the end of the holiday season on the desk all day long. All right, Andy, bring us home here with uh, Thanksgiving dinner. On that note, what mine? What do you have generally? Yeah, what do you like? What do you have? Uh, since 1994, I've been cooking the same. I do the cooking. I've been cooking the same Thanksgiving meal, the one that Jeff hates, pretty much, for um, exactly the same way. I have four kids, and if I changed a tiny bit of the meal, they walk out. So it's going to be the same as it's been for coming on 30 years. All right. Well, hopefully you can send over your secret recipe to Sherman and we can see if we can turn them around here. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, it's tradition. I, I can, I can stomach it for a day. It's all good. I, I get it. And, you know, it is one of the most popular holidays here in the U S and it's one thing that we typically coalesce around. So, uh, Andy, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us this week. I know this will push out a little bit after the fact because of our compliance, but we really appreciate you on the show today. Thanks for all of your insight. And uh, just keep up the good work and, and, and put it out there for folks. So thanks again. This presentation was recorded on the date indicated. Views and opinions expressed herein are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of Doubleline Capital LP, its affiliates, or employees, should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media, in any form, without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this material. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The receipt of this presentation by any listener should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but it does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.